Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. So listen, one thing I've noticed about me and maybe you've noticed about you, but I've never had to talk myself into knowing the right thing to do. But I generally or quite frequently have to talk myself into actually doing the right thing. For instance, when making my dinner plate, right? I know I need to eat those green beans, but I have a dilemma, I have a problem because I won't put them on my plate. He said, Brian, why don't you just put them on your plate? Well, because I'm trying to manage what I eat, so I just wanna have one plate of food. It's a healthy thing, right? Don't get a bunch of leftovers, one plate's a good thing. So if I'm making one plate of food, if I put green beans on there, it takes up room from the other things I wanna eat, the macaroni and cheese, the mashed potatoes, all that kind of stuff. So I decide, well, I just want, don't wanna put green beans on. So Brian, you should, I said, I know, but I don't wanna, and so I don't. I never have to justify in my head that I should exercise, but getting up and doing it's a complete different thing. How many of you woke up one minute late and said, oh, it's done, I can't do it now? Right, knowing what to do and doing the right thing are two different things. And not always, but generally, let's be honest, generally you know the right thing to do, but how often do you find yourself arguing with actually doing that thing? But what's even more interesting about me, and maybe you as well, is when it comes to things I wanna do, but I shouldn't do it. Y'all ever been there? You wanna do it, but you shouldn't do it? I can find myself believing all the great, amazing things I tell myself. For instance, should I eat ice cream? Absolutely. I've earned it. I've worked hard. You only live life once. I'm married. I deserve a belly. Right? That's just what I come up with. I just make up all this stuff. I can even quote scripture. Check this out. This is what you get to do when you're a pastor. When you become a pastor, you get to do this too. Look at this scripture, what Paul says in 1 Timothy. He says, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected. Y'all like I didn't know this in the Bible. I know, read your Bible. You can justify ice cream or any cake or anything you want. It says if it's received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the word of God in prayer. So folks, all you gotta do is pray over the ice cream and it's biblical, right? You're just good. But the truth is for my justifications, none of that actually makes sense. I'm taking scripture out of context. But in that moment, it makes perfect sense because I wanna justify why I should do what I know I shouldn't do rather than do what I know I should do and I don't wanna do. And for many things, this doesn't matter. It's silly, it's, it, it doesn't matter if I eat ice cream or not. But when it comes to matters of our faith, I bet you've never argued if you should forgive somebody or if you're supposed to forgive someone. But at you, I bet you've argued plenty that you don't wanna do it now. I bet you've never argued with yourself if you should love your neighbor. I bet you've justified why it doesn't mean my neighbor right now. Some of y'all live next to family. You're trying not to laugh. You're like, I can't, my family live. I can't do that. 
But what's common to all of us, and this is what I wanna point out, and we know this, what's common to all of us is that tension we feel in those moments. When there's a decision or a choice we have to make, quite often there's this tension, there's this thing that we know exists, and we have to deal with it. We have to address it, we have to come up with excuses, we have to push it way down deep inside, pretending it doesn't really exist. We can ignore it, rebuke it, whatever we choose to do in the moment, but what's common to all of us is that tension, that knowing, that feeling that something may be off. And what we're going to see from the life of David this morning is that it's in those moments of tensions, in those moments of tension, we are provided abundant clarity if we choose to listen and if we choose to stop and pay attention. That tension should get our attention And so, so far in this study, we've learned some great things about God and the dynamics of our faith when we're looking at the life of David. After all, David was considered by God a man after his own heart. And that's a description, of course, that every one of us should strive to obtain. We see God chose David before he had done anything special. He's a young man in the middle of the field, in the middle of nowhere, and yet God chose him, God called him, and anointed him to be the king. But the foundation of this relationship wasn't about how awesome David was. The foundation of the relationship was the grace of Jesus Christ, the grace of God. That was the foundation, who he was. And so we saw that David was simply a recipient of God's grace. And we see that David waited upon the Lord. He waited for God's timing. And we learned that God acts on behalf of those who wait for him, that God will be going before you. God will be providing opportunities. God will be opening up doors. And so while David did wait, last week we saw he didn't just wait and didn't do anything. David would step up and become a problem solver. He stepped up to challenges as they arose. He justified the reason why he should do something is because of his experience. He didn't allow his experience to stop him. He said, I'm the best person for this job because of what I have done. And he allowed his faith. He allowed his faith to justify his actions. He goes, well, God's called me this. God brought me this. God's gifted me this. God's presented this. So I'm going to step up and do something about it. And we learn that God is preparing all of us, every single one of us, to rise to the challenges that come our way in order to do his work in this world. Where we left off last week is David defeated Goliath. And after he did this, of course, Goliath was a big giant. You've probably heard of him. But after David took out Goliath, the people absolutely loved David. And why wouldn't they? He's the hero. He stood up. I mean, they still make movies with that same storyline, don't they? The smaller, the unassuming step up and rise to the challenge. Everybody loved David except for the king. And it's not surprising, but Saul gets angry. He gets jealous with David. He masks his anger and his, and his emotions by saying, well, David's just trying to come for my throne. David's trying to kill me. David's trying to take this away. And so Saul starts pursuing David. 
He starts trying to kill David. David has to run for his life. He has to leave his wife. He leaves and has to run with just him and his mighty band of warriors. It was quite a few. But him and the people who were loyal to David knew David wasn't doing anything wrong. David, who rose up to be this great military leader for Saul, was now on the run for his life. The king was after him. And this is a major twist in the life of David. You'd think with all that God's done that everything would be easy, breezy, no problems for David. But that's not what we see. We see David hiding and running for his life. That's where we're jumping in. It says this, 1 Samuel chapter 24. It says, after Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness I don't know how to pronounce that, folks. We're just going to skip it. He went into the wilderness of this place. Alan, how do you say that? Yep, we're all guessing. I don't know. He don't know either. I caught him off guard. I'm going to pay for that later, by the way, just letting you know. Now, verse two. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel and went searching for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. At that place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into the cave to, I know you can't make this stuff up, relieve himself. Went to the bathroom. Everybody does it. He had to go. But just, but as it happens, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. So here it is. Saul's out with 3,000 men chasing David and his men ready to take him out. And now David has a chance. The king's by himself. David's with himself. His warriors in this cave. Saul is extremely vulnerable. And remember, David could easily take this man out. And don't forget, David is a warrior. David does this for a living. He's a soldier. He's an elite soldier. So taking someone out who's trying to kill him would have been very business as usual for David. Saul's as vulnerable as he can be. Now's his chance to kill this king who's coming after him. Verse four, here's what his buddies say. Now's your opportunity. David's men whispered to him, today the Lord is telling you. You get that? They're saying, I have a message from the Lord for you, David. Lord has told me what you should do. I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do as, as you wish. Usually when you see stuff like this quoted, it's because it's, it's from another place in the Bible. This is not found in the Bible. We don't know where it comes. This is what they said. He's not quoting scripture. He's just coming up with today's the day for you to take this guy out. Now here, before we, before we go too far in that, can we blame them? Can we blame David's elite warrior buddies from wanting to kill the king who's chasing after them, trying to literally kill them. They've had to leave their family. They've had to leave their friends. They'd have to leave the kids. They can't watch baseball games, can't go to soccer games. They can't watch Netflix, right? They can't do any of this because they are on the run. And now's the king's here. It looks like God has just brought it to them for them to wipe him out. So he said, David, it's your time. Take him out, claim the throne. Second part of 24, four. David crept forward and cut off a piece of the helm of Saul's robe. 
Now, why, of course, this isn't the same as killing Saul. It is offensive for David to do this to the king, the the Lord's anointed. The robe is a symbol of power. He's cutting this, and there's so many metaphorical things. We could get lost in the details. It really doesn't matter for us. What matters for us is what happens next. Verse five, it says, but David's, what's that word? Uh Uh-oh, there it is. David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut off excuse me, cut off Saul's robe. His conscience, that tension, it started bothering him because he cut off a piece of robe. His friends presented him as if the Lord's telling you to cut his throat, to take him out. But David begins to be bothered for cutting a piece of the robe. Sneaking up on the king, evidently he felt this tension. He knew this was wrong. He knew it wasn't right. And he comes back to his men, verse six. It says, but he said to his men, the Lord forbid. Can't do this. I know it's easy. I know it would be easy. It would save us a lot of trouble, save us a lot of hassle. I mean, this guy's trying to kill us. But the Lord forbids. That means if God said it. I shouldn't do it, so here I am. He said, the Lord forbids that I should do this to my Lord, the King. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has, um, himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. And after Saul had left the cave and gone his way, excuse me, stop there, restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. And so I can't imagine how his friends felt in the moment. You have these elite warriors, these Navy SEALs. They're hiding in a cave. That's not normal for them. That's not natural for them. They want to fight. They want to take on this challenge. This is where they're at. And they're saying, it looks like, David, God has provided this victory. You can just take the king out. We can go home. We can see our family. We can see our friends. We can eat ice cream. Like, David, this cave stuff isn't fun. I want to go back home. Just take him out. But David is getting all upset about cutting a piece of clothes? I mean, that's so small and insignificant to taking someone's life. I mean, what kind of person would be so sensitive as to get upset when you have the opportunity to kill them? Why would you get upset about cutting a piece of clothes? Right, that's so small compared to cutting him. Why would David do this? Well, you see, that's why David is who he is. That's the kind of person you want leading the kingdom. You want the one in charge to say, sorry, I was wrong for those small things. You want the one in charge who's willing to restrain his friends and his personal relationships and to tell his best buddies who've left absolutely everything. They've left everything for him. And he said, I can't help you right now. The Lord said, no, I can't cut it. I can't do it. He's willing to risk his relationship in order to do the right thing. And folks, you know, I know that's not easy all the time. But he drew a line in the sand. He said, God forbid it. I'm not doing it. God God anointed him. God can take care of this. And Andy Stanley says it best, I cannot make it any better, so I'm not even gonna try. He says this, he says, it's in these moments we pay attention to the tension. In those moments, we pay attention to the tension. You see, David felt that tension, his conscience started bothering him, but he didn't ignore it. 
He didn't take matters into his own hands. He didn't say, how, how many times y'all ever done this? I'm gonna do it anyways and God's just gonna have to fix it. Y'all ain't never done that, just me? Well, I've never done it either. Then we'll be on the same page. I've never done that either. Yeah, he just said, no, he knew it was wrong and he dealt with it. He didn't explain it away. He didn't blame. So he just said, no, I can't do this. He paused and allowed his conscience to speak to him. And as Christians, we have to understand that we have to pay attention to our conscience and we have to allow it to be shaped by God's word. Look what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5. Excuse me, look what Paul says. Yeah, I said that. He says, the purpose of my instruction, that's his teaching, that's his letters, that's the things he's doing. He said, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers be filled with love. We usually stop there, don't we? Just love. And not just love. That comes from pure heart, but also a clear what? Yeah. Which means you're able to have a clear conscience by following God's word. His teaching and his leading and his direction wants to settle that junk you have going on. Those things you've been ignoring, the way your conscience keeps you up at night, it's not just you, it's all of us. Those things that just run through your mind. Paul's like, no, no, my purpose of me teaching is so you can have a clear conscience. So you don't have to be up at night. You don't have to be replaying that thing over and over inside of your head. You can deal with these things through God's word. And so Paul, Paul, I mean, excuse me, David, David was sensitive to that tension. He was sensitive to God's leading. He, he felt it and dealt with it and said, no, no, I can't do this. You see, David knew, and this is important, David knew and his conscience was in tune that sinning against God is not a way to obey God. Do we know that? Sinning against God is not a way to obey God. David knew that it's not just about where you're going, but how you get there. He knew God said he was gonna be king. That had been settled. It wasn't happening right now. He had to suffer. He was dealing with things, but he said, hey, me killing the king can't be the way God wants me to be king. Logically, we're like, well, this must be from God. He's like, no, killing the king is not right. So this can't be an opportunity from the Lord. He recognized sin. He recognized the temptation. He recognized that all his buddies were wrong. I said, no, that's not from the Lord. The Lord's not calling me to sin. He's not calling me to step out on that. And what this means for us is that for the Christian, we have to understand that doing the wrong things for the right reasons is not okay. It's not a scriptural thing. Ignoring sin, dismissing sin, thinking that somehow these little sins aren't a big deal and God doesn't care about that because there's this bigger, greater, better thing happening. So if I just sin a little bit here, ah. Y'all ever done that? Of course you have. But we see that our conscience matters, that tension matters. But isn't this how, forgive me for a moment, let's just be direct, but isn't this how we justify our, our politics? Isn't this how we claim that our side is the right side? We dismiss these things. We minimize sin. We say, well, that's not that big of a deal, Brian. It's for the greater good. Folks, killing unborn babies is not okay. It's not something we minimize for the greater good. Nationalism, thinking that somehow America's more important than everybody else is not true. That's not a Christian thing. Capitalism, 
I know I'm going everywhere. Might as well, right? Just dive right into it. Capitalism, it isn't a Christian virtue. I'm not saying I have a better idea. I'm just saying it's not a Christian idea. Grace and love and giving people what they haven't earned and don't deserve, that's a Christian virtue. The economics of God is grace, folks. And you're thankful for it. And I know that all of us have made mistakes and we've done things that we're not proud of and we're not happy with and we wish we could go back and redo some of those choices. I know I have plenty of them, but the way forward for the Christian is to acknowledge when something is sin, not ignore it, not ignore it, not ignore it, not justify it, not reject it, not pretend it's okay. It's, it's acknowledging, yep, this is sin. It's acknowledging it's sin and doing what, folks? What do we do? We ask for forgiveness and he is faithful to forgive us from all of our sins. Folks, that is the message of our faith. It's acknowledging and dealing with and saying, hey, I've messed up, God forgive me. And does he forgive us? Of course. You see, there is no greater good when God is your standard. Working out the gospel in modern day life, learning God's word, obeying what he teaches is the absolute highest standard, even even if it means we have to suffer. And it very well may lead to suffering because that's exactly what we see modeled in our savior. Jesus took up the cross with the torture and the pain. He endured the cross, he sat on it. He allowed them to nail him to it with all the shame and all the, well, everybody's watching you up there. I mean, can you imagine how that would feel to die that way? to bear the sins of the entire world, to feel rejected by the Father. In your moments of death, feeling rejected by the Father. Folks, do you know how scary that must feel? The greatest good wasn't his personal gain. The greatest good was suffering and dying for the benefit of all of us. And that didn't make any sense to anyone around Jesus. Nobody understood it. But we have to understand that biblically, that's why we're transformed by God's word, that biblically we are taught that quite often suffering is the path God chooses for us to do a greater thing. And we follow that and we obey that. And it's not easy, it's not fun. Nobody's described anything great as suffering, right? I mean, fun as suffering, have they? Right, no, it's not what it means, but that's the path, that's what we do. And so, if we think that God will not call us to suffer, we have missed the gospel. We have misunderstanding who Jesus was and what he calls us to. Because if you remember, he says, deny yourself. And what's the next part? Take up your cross. Not lazy boy, folks. Your personal comfort is not his priority. And it's so hard for us to see that in the moment. But what we see in the cross is God's greatest display of love and mercy and grace happened on that for the entire world. God used suffering, the suffering of his son to save the world. And we have to understand that in our moments of suffering and despair, that God can and often does use that for a greater good, a greater thing. And when God gets a hold of stuff like that, he can do far more with it than you could ever imagine. Suffering is a thing. 
we have to just resolve that in our mind, this is a big one, that God is God and we are not. This is a problem today and when we get the, we get the roles reversed, you see C.S. Lewis pointed this out a few generations ago. Follow the quote, it's pretty good. He says this, he says, the ancient man, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock or the defendant seat, right? God is in the dock. He is a quite kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end with God's acquittal. But the important thing is this, that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. But folks, we are not on the bench. We are not in the place or the position as created beings to judge the creator of the universe. And it is clear from scripture that quite often the path God calls us to is a path of suffering. And we must be willing to accept that and live into that if we are gonna be the people he's called us to be. And so David, he knew that. He paid attention to the tension. He dealt with it and he allowed his obedience to God to override all other concerns, even if it meant his own personal suffering. Choosing God's way may often lead to personal suffering. But folks, you're gonna suffer anyways. It's the plight of all humans. To be a human is to suffer. And there's no such thing, if you didn't know this, I am so glad you were here this morning. There is no such thing as a pain-free, problem-free, suffering-free life. And I know many of us, we wanna shield our kids from this kind of things, but it's probably a better idea to prepare them for the inevitable. Because as as an adult, you're gonna suffer. You're gonna suffer when you fight against sin. You're gonna suffer when you say no to those things that your body really craves. You're gonna suffer, it's gonna be hard. You don't wanna tell anybody, but it's true. It's going to happen. And if you're not experiencing that, if you're not dealing with that, you're not fighting hard enough. You're probably just saying yes and living in that sin, going through those things, not actually being transformed and allowing God to do the things through you he wants to do. But David chose to follow God even if it meant he had to hide out in the back of a cave. Even if it meant he couldn't go home, his buddies couldn't go home. Even if it meant he was staying on the road and running and somehow God's gonna have to figure this thing out because I can't, I'm not gonna sin, I'm not gonna do this. David chose the path of suffering. He knew sin wasn't a way out. Well, after Saul left the cave, David ran out and called to him. Remember, Saul had 3,000 men. That's a lot of people. David ran out of the cave, bowed down, face to the ground, held up the piece of garment and said, Saul, look, I'm not trying to kill you. I'm, I'm, all that's wrong. That's false. I'm for you. I'm not trying to kill you. Then he says this. He says a lot. You can read it for yourself. But he says, may the Lord be the judge between you and me. He's like, God is God, I am not. I'll let God be God, I won't be God. So may the Lord deal with this. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evil doers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. He told the king, listen, you do what you're gonna do, but I'm not doing it. 
I'm, I'm not going down this path. And Saul sees David. Saul's obviously embarrassed. He just went to the bathroom in front of all these people, right? That has to be, that has to be running through his mind. Like, did he see that? Like, was he, right? So like Saul's there, he gets called out in front of 3,000 of his men. All of these men have left their families. They're not watching Netflix. They're not eating ice cream. They're on the run in the middle of these rocks trying to kill this guy because the king said that he's trying to kill him. And then it turns out none of it's true. Did y'all catch all that? Go back. It'll be online. You can just put it on slow and follow through. Okay. But listen, so he's sitting there and Saul's embarrassed. He's like, David, you're just a better guy than me. He's like, I, I see you, you are supposed to be the king. Like, don't harm my family, but, but I just see that, like, you're just a better person than me. David, this will never happen again. It does, by the way. It happens, like, right afterwards. He does it all over again. But in that moment, David just put himself and said, look, I'm not doing this anymore. You see, in that moment, in that cave, David rose up. And in this battle, we see this was a greater battle a greater defeat than even Goliath. Look what his son writes later. He says this. He says, better to be patient than powerful. How many of y'all agree with that? Like, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I don't know. That's what the Bible says. It says, better to have self-control than conquer a city. How many of y'all, how many of y'all would, how many of you all, y'all, whatever. How many, how many people in here would rather conquer a city than have self-control? Just five of us are honest today. Okay, that's good. Yeah, but this was a, a bigger deal. Bigger than taking out Goliath. In that moment, he showed self-control, self-restraint. David paid attention to the tension. And so I ask you this morning, do you pay attention to the tension? Do you pause in those moments to gain clarity from the Lord? Because God has built in all of us a warning system that likes to blank, likes to go off, likes to make you feel bad. That gut feeling says, uh-uh, this isn't right. And then we see that the Holy Spirit amplifies it, especially if you don't quelch it, especially if you don't push him to the side. The Holy Spirit makes it louder, like this is wrong, this isn't okay. And when you feel that tension, and when you feel it in the moment, you can do this rapid fire if you get used to it. You can ask yourself some really important questions to help you work through this. But you have to be gut-wrenching honest with yourself. You don't have to tell anybody, it's just between you and you. But the best and first question to ask when we feel that tension is what's going on? Like what's really going on in this moment? What's really happening? Because at the beginning of our story, remember this, at the beginning of our story, we see that Saul was furious with David. But who is Saul really mad at? Saul is the one who disobeyed God. And so God chooses another king. Saul's the one who chose to be fearful rather than faithful in the moment of Goliath. Saul clearly knows that David is special. And rather than getting on board with what God's doing, he's trying to trace, chase down and kill the one that God has said will be the next king. So who is Saul actually angry with? Yeah, himself. He's done it to himself. These are the choices he has made. And I know it's hard in the moment for all of us to see that. But when we first feel that tension in the relationships, when we first feel frustrated, when we first feel aggravated with those peoples and those other things, it's important for us to ask, what's really going on? I mean, is it really them or is it something I've done? You see, this week I was super aggravated with my son. Just to let you know, I'm not gonna tell you which one. It's the oldest, okay? I was super aggravated with him. 
He did not do well on a math test. He bombed it, right? He bombed it. And when I found out the wrath of daddy was coming, folks, it was coming. I look for reasons to take away video games. I'm just gonna let you know, I do. I look for reasons to take them away because I can't stand video games. And so the wrath of daddy was coming. But do you know who I was really aggravated with, folks? Me. You see, I was aggravated with the fact that I'm not good at math and I passed that on, right? I mean, serious, I passed that on. He's not gonna be good at math. That'll never be for him. I'm not good at math. It seems like he got that trait. He's gonna be popular, not good at math. You can't have both those, they don't work. (laughs) That was for you math people, you heard it. I was aggravated with the fact that I signed up all three of my kids for baseball at the same time. And three days a week, we're out there for four and a half hours. They're kids, they didn't do that. I did that. I'm aggravated that they leave the house at 6.45 in the mornings and don't get home on a good night till seven, but usually eight or nine o'clock. My kids, seven, 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 I forget. Seven, nine, 10, right? I should know this better, Jess. Yes, I should know this better. Someone just had a birthday, my daughter did, okay. But seven, nine, and 10. Right, they're out for 15 hours a day. But I chose this, I did this. I'm the one who bought them video games, folks. And so they were about to get the wrath of daddy. And I said, you know what? It's not his fault. And I let it go. Only took me two hours. And I didn't even yell at him yet. Like, do you know how big of a win that is for me? I didn't have to apologize in the moment because I dealt with it first. I said, what's really going on? But when it comes to your kids, let me ask, how often are you really upset at you and not them? How often are you really upset they're not who you thought they were gonna be? They're not living into your expectations that you had for them. And you get aggravated and frustrated with them, but it has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with you and your pride and your ego. In marriages, I mean, I know this to be true, you probably aren't nearly as mad at your spouse as you think you are. Because guess who chose to marry him? (laughs) You. Right? The younger you saw the signs. The younger you said, I can change it. When we get married, all that's going to stop. Yeah, the younger you thought you could handle it. The truth is, here you are now, and whose fault is it? You younger folks, listen to the laughter. They're uncomfortable is why they're laughing. Because it's true. It's you. You did it. Often, you're not really mad at them. You're mad at you, so deal with you. Just own it and work through it. We need to feel the tension. Excuse me, when we feel the tension, we need to ask ourselves, what's really going on? Who am I really mad at? Why am I mad at them for that? What does that have to do with anything? Because if we're gut-wrenching honest, quite often we find it's really not about anybody else, but it's about us and the decisions we've made. And next we ask, what's really going on? In the middle, right after that, we say, am I responding or reacting to the tension? Am I responding or am I reacting? Our emotional responses are generally in the moment, not helpful. Y'all ever learn that? 
Yeah, not at all. David could have succumbed to the peer pressure and took out the king. He could have instantly emotionally responded, took him out, wiped him out, but he didn't. And one of the things that helps me identify for me, you can, I hope this helps you. If not, you can put it to the side. But one of the things that helped me instead of reacting, but responding, right? Responding is thinking through, working it out. Reacting is that emotional thing. But the way I know if I'm responding or reacting is when I've justified why I am right and they should be condemned. While I am holy and I am amazing and I've never done anything wrong and that other person is a sinner that needs to experience God's wrath. Y'all ever done that before? Usually when I find myself describing myself as God, I realize I'm wrong. Or when I start saying things like, I can't believe them. How could they? Don't they know who I am? Y'all say stuff like too, don't you? Is it just me today? Is this just for me? Yeah, anytime I find myself talking about them more than me, I'm probably wrong. I'm reacting. I'm not responding. You see, Saul didn't self-investigate. Instead, he reacts. He takes his troop. He throws things at David. He's constantly wasting time. Listen, he's wasting time fighting against what God wants to do. Folks, if you're fighting against what God wants to do, you're wasting your time. He will win. He is God after all. He was wasting time. He could have been raising David up, saying, David, look, here's the mistakes I've made. I'm gonna set you up to be the best king in the history of kings. He could have been discipling David, training David, helping David, training David. He could have been doing all this amazing stuff to lift this man up, but instead he's wasting his time. He's wasting his uh, legacy. He's wasting his energy fighting against God. But you won't find peace if you're doing that, folks. It won't help you. In my plea, I'm almost done. For you younger folks and maybe some of you older folks, but specifically you younger folks, I want you to just know that sin is not a shortcut to God's preferred future. Sin is not a shortcut to God's preferred future. What I want you to know is that if God wants you to do something, stay the course, sin is not going to get you where he wants you to be. I wanna encourage you to stay the course and be obedient. If you're going off to college, if you're at college, maybe you're about to start the workforce or whatever you got going on, we have to learn that from the life of David, he knew that this opportunity to sin was not gonna get him where God wanted him. That saying no to the sin was gonna get him where God wanted him because sin isn't a shortcut. Sin is a different road altogether. The destinations do not end in the same place. It just distracts you and you end up off course away from the destination. You see, the things that people don't tell you is that if you go down the right road, how do you get back on the right road? You gotta go back. You know how much time you waste? You know how much energy you waste? All of that's wasted time when you could just stay the course because sin is not a shortcut. And what I had to learn the hard way, you can learn from my mistakes because I didn't understand that God was for me. Because everything I wanted to do, God didn't want me to do. And everything God wanted me to do, I didn't want to do. And I just thought he was trying to kill all my fun, stop me from living my best life. 
What I didn't realize is God is for me. God loves me. God wants to save me and help me. What I didn't realize is that my own sin is disgusting and gross and God wants to give me an abundant life through Jesus Christ and that comes through following him. And unfortunately, I thought I was smarter than God. Y'all ever been there? It's not gonna matter if I do that, if I'm in that relationship or do those things. It's not gonna matter. God, you don't know. He sure does. Sin's not a shortcut, folks to where God wants to take you. The shortest way to get to where God wants you to go is through staying faithful. And those temptations seem unbearable, it seem unrealistic, but it's far better than carrying around the guilt and shame you gotta deal with after you go down that road. Sin's not a shortcut. Ask any other adult if you don't believe me. But for all of us, we need to pay attention to the tension. We need to ask, what's really going on? Am I reacting or am I responding? And I ask you this morning, this is one of those great sermons where I just ask, is your conscience clear? Is there something you need to deal with? Is there someone you need to go back and apologize to? Is there someone you need to have a conversation with? In the moments and the things you're doing in life, are you reacting or are you responding? And some of you are just so engulfed in sin. You know it's not okay. You want a better way. And I'm just here to tell you the way is to repent, to turn from it. To just say, I can't do this anymore. I'm gonna trust and follow Jesus Christ. I'm gonna believe he's smarter than me and he's for me. And some of you just need to surrender your life. That's that tension you're feeling. You're trying to hold on to it. But God's calling you to him. Will you pray with me?